I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitskin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. Today, I sit down with Jim Weber, who's the CEO of Brooks Running, who Warren Buffett calls an absolute force. And after this conversation, you're going to see why Jim's a force. Now, Jim is someone who's actually turned around four companies, and Brooks Running being one of them. What he's done for Brooks over the last 20 years is just absolutely incredible. What he's been able to do to build, how he develops talent and his people, and what he does personally to develop himself as a leader. We talk about all of this and so much more on this conversation. And one, I think anyone who cares more about what they're going after in life, how you can develop yourself and develop the people that are important in your life. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jim Weber. I am thrilled to tell you about my new online personal growth course called You Unleashed. You Unleashed is for those people looking to burst through the walls of their previous limitations and fears and tap into their greater potential, or what I call your You Unleashed self. This course is a culmination of the best things I've learned being a professional athlete, entrepreneur, investor, and spending thousands of hours sitting down with world-class performers on this podcast to uncover what you need to raise your potential to a new level. This course is going to give you clarity of what an extraordinary life looks like and who you need to become in order to achieve that life. Now, I'll provide you with the mindsets, behaviors, and actions you need to bring out your unleashed self. You'll uncover your deeper why, your values, and your life philosophy that will guide you moving forward. So the question is, why haven't you unleashed your full potential yet? You only get one shot at this life, so what are you waiting for? You're meant to become extraordinary. We all are. So if you're interested in stepping into your potential and cultivating the type of life you've been dreaming of, then check out my You Unleashed course by clicking below or going to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed and because you listen to the podcast i'm giving you 50 percent off the entire course for a limited time by using code wgyt that's what got you there.com forward slash you dash unleashed and use code wgyt for 50 percent off jim welcome to what got you there how are you doing today Great, Sean. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're one of those visionary type leaders who've done so much over your career. And, and I want to actually start off by giving you some words that someone said of you. And this isn't just anyone. This is Warren Buffett. And this is what he ha- had to say about you. So he says, Jim caught my eye. Jim would catch anyone's eye. He is a force. I decided that Jim was simply too talented not to be running his own show. I mean, well, how does that make you feel hearing someone like Warren Buffett, who's seen so many brilliant operators throughout his career, say that about you? You know, it was it was it was gratifying and and surprising. I'll be honest, um, Sean. So I've had my head down trying to ha- you know create success in in everything that I started to really focus on from a pretty young age, and uh, and so you know at Brooks, one of the things I'm most proud of is that runners are falling in love with our brand and our products. That's what we sort of are on a quest to create every day. But Warren Buffett's fallen in love with our business. And and that was a mission and a goal I had when we became part of Berkshire. I I thought that what we were doing at Brooks is something that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and everyone at Berkshire would appreciate. And so just it's very gratifying um, to see that he has. And, And we worked hard at Brooks. It's not an accident, the success we've had. And and I think Warren's uh, appreciation for it is is really, really been wonderful to see. What's it like when you're sitting down with someone like Warren Buffett? I- I'm wondering you as a, a learner, someone who loves to learn, understand other people. W- what are you doing in those moments? Or are there little things that he's doing that you're picking up on? 
you know, I, I've learned so much from him, Sean. And I think one of the things that that is, uh, I think, distinctive about him is he and he is in the moment with people. You know, he loves business. When the door closes, he is just diving in with curiosity about your business and how you compete and 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 how you create success over time in that business. So that that wasn't necessarily a shock to me, but the door closes, there's no interruptions, there's no cell phones, there's no phone calls coming in. You you have his undivided attention. And I think it speaks to his his focus and curiosity as a learner. That's what I took away from it. Because my goal, you know, when I first met him and and I told him the first time we met a decade or so ago, I said, Warren, you don't know this, but you've been mentoring me for 20 years because I'd read all of his letters. I just loved the way he thought about brands and businesses, Sean. And, and, uh, and I was just intrigued by it. I said, so Warren, you don't know it, but you've been mentoring from afar for the last 20 years. And, and uh, you know, I just think his, his curiosity at, at, at this point in his career is still as intense as ever. And, and that's, that's a takeaway for me. Well, he mentioned you're a force, and so now I'm wondering if you can step back and analyze some of the mindsets or a mindset that has just been most influential for you. If Jim could look back and be like, you know what, I've actually had this in my head for the last 20 years, and I feel like this has hugely been influential in my success. Yeah, you know, it's been a journey. I'm, I'm such a better leader today than I, I was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, without a question, Sean. But I think for me, you know, there's first a mode that I've been in from a young age, and and I had hard wiring in me. Um, just you know, we're all creatures of our experiences and and everything that we've we've been through in life. So I had a lot of persistence, and and uh, I believed you know in the Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hours, hard work and focus was just critical. But as a, I, I I used to play hockey, and I had some tenacity and persistence and grit. Uh, in in going after the puck and getting it out of the corners, so so I've always had that. That's sort of the mode. But I think as I as I started on a journey to want to get good at something, you know, just obviously starting with curiosity, but then being a problem solver. I did, you know, Brooks was the fourth business I ran that was a turnaround. So I was always trying to find a path, you know, for the business um, to succeed and and then create a plan. If I didn't have a plan, I couldn't sleep. And I, I think the mindset of, of just solving for, you know, that puzzle of, of what that business had to achieve to be successful, I love that. And that so that problem-solving mindset, I would say, is part of it, Sean, but then coupled with a, a sense of urgency and a, and a bias for action, you know, you got to move, you got to... You got you got to start moving towards that plan. But I I think at 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 my core, if I started with a something that I was good at, you know, maybe a a superpower, it was solving solving for a brand and a business in a competitive strategy sense. And and that mindset I still carry today. It's it's really solving for the customer at its end. Jim, when when did you get clear that that was a mindset you had and was really beneficial? Right, like twenty years ago, could you have sat back and said these exact same things? Or, or was it just with, with experience that you're able to look back and, and really understand that strength you had? Yeah, I, I feel so lucky, Sean, because I have, uh, I have I think, the best job in business running a purpose-driven brand and a great category. It's global. Running is just phenomenal. It's a great sport and an investment in your health and wellness and all that. So I love the job I have. But here's the truth. I wrote, believe it or not, I wrote a paper in seventh grade on careers. My English teacher challenged us to wrote take five career paths and, and write about them. What do you want to do? And of course I picked hockey player. That didn't happen. Um, but second was, was to run a business. I, I just had this, this sense that I wanted to be a leader. I wanted to run a business someday. And so I've been on that path for, you know, for, since a very, very young age. So, so first, the first time I, I got a job to run a business, I was 30 years old, Sean. I thought, okay, what do you have to do? You have to solve for the customer. You have to put strategy together. You got you to gotta put plans together. And that's what I thought the CEO role was. And, and so that's where I started. Um, and, and I got good at it. Later became really developing people, developing culture, developing the organization, and and uh, and I would say I've added that skill set in the last 15 years. I've worked really hard on it, and so I'm more I'm a more complete leader today than I've ever been. But I started with that sense of you know leading an organization, sort of sort of captain of the ship, right? You don't want to you don't want to crash the ship on the rocks. Don't want to do that. So you, you're responsible for you know pointing it in the right direction and 
and stewarding a path um, for the organization to be successful. Jim, I'm, I'm really intrigued by this because you mentioned later in your career, it was more about developing the people, the culture, the purpose, everything like that. I'm wondering for you, is this an evolution, a personal evolution where it's like the inner growth then leads to outer surface or outer service? Like you've got to get to that place internally or are you viewing it somewhat differently? You know, I think you, you know, you, you, you have values and sensibilities and, and sort of philosophies and style that are, that, that are, have been part of me forever. But I think my awareness um, and sense of, uh, starts with a sense of self and understanding your filters, knowing yourself super well. It, I got to age 40 before I really started to unpack my hard wiring, Sean, and why I am who I am. And that's key because great leaders, I think, then have situational awareness, right? Yeah. And that's empathy and understanding and just the intense ability to listen, which is the first meeting I had with Warren Buffett. That's what he was doing. He was he was learning from me and everything everything I knew and and, and listening intently. So I would say that it took me um, 20 years to get to the point where I, I could pause and be in the moment and deeply sort of understand and, and, and try to see where people were coming from. Mm. Um, and, and that's been super powerful because guess what, you know, business is a team sport, you know, it, it's, it's great that you're smart and it's great that you could execute and know how to do certain things. But, but when you can get right now, Brooks, we're at 1200 people, when you get 1200 people working as a team, um, it's not only fun, but it's it's powerful for your customer and and the way you execute. It's it's so much about execution today. Vision's great, but execution's key. Oh, I can't wait to talk even more about the people here in a minute. But I actually want to go back a little bit. Just that you mentioned some of the hardwiring that you unpacked and uncovered. You had this line in the book that just like really stuck out to me, and it's I'm an introvert who wants to be an extrovert. A work forever in progress. I just love that part. I just want to highlight. I remind myself every day that attitude is a choice, and open, optimistic, positive people are magnetic to others. Talk to me about attitude as a choice because I. I Coming from where you came from, I know you, you had an alcoholic father, and then I don't, I don't want to bore you too much here, but I remember part of the book you were saying that growing up in the Weber household was just chaotic, uncertainty, negativity, stress, all of that filled your household. So I'm wondering how you go from that to then develop this, this mindset and attitude and just developing people. I know that was a lot to unpack, but I just want to hear your thoughts on all that. I think that's what I, what I discovered about myself is that attitude is a choice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on my mother's side, they were sort of glass half full, generally people, and nobody's perfect. Every family, I think, could have a book writing about them, right? But, but on my mother's side, they were glass half full, positive, you know, extroverted, connected people and very social. And my dad's side, you know, was a little bit more introverted and introspective. And, and in my dad's case, um, insecure and just lots of challenges in his business. He struggled financially and, and otherwise. I don't think he, he wanted to be in the business he was in. He ended up there because of his father passing unexpectedly. So, but he lived, he, he spent his whole life there and alcohol was part of that. And so he was struck, he was not a happy person. And, and I saw that and, and, and by about age 10, I thought, okay, there's two different scenarios here. Um, you know, these people look a lot happier. Hmm. These people just look like they're having more fun. <laughs> And, and I just decided, you know, I wanted, I wanted to, you know, be happier and, and, and be successful and, and try to be good at something, Sean. So, so that was a, that was literally a choice I made. And from that point on, I've just been learning and watching people. And I think I, you know, I have, I have a, my DNA comes from both sides of the family. So I, I do think I'm more naturally an introvert. Um, and I'm naturally sort of inside my head and I'm, I'm constantly processing and, and worrying and thinking. Um, but, you know, life is, is about the journey. And, uh, and so making that choice to be in it and be present for the people around you, I've, I've always known that's the mode that I want to be in. And, I, and I've, I've worked at that over time. But, yeah, I, uh, yeah, you know, you do the Myers-Briggs things and we do insights here and, and, you know, that that yellow sensibility around, you know, being engaging and and uh, and reaching out to people and being present for people and all that. I challenge myself to do that. Um, it's not natural for me, but it's always rewarding. And, and it's what life is all about. So, yeah, I think we're all we're all a work in progress. Right. And uh, and I've been unpacking who I am and why I am who I am for a long time. 
Oh, no, no. I, I, I love hearing about this uh, on the Myers-Briggs. I, I'm an INTJ, so also that, that introverted tendency. Uh, I'm wondering, for someone who's in their head analyzing situations constantly, is there anything you've done over the years? I know you said your continual work in progress just to be able to almost step outside your head at times and, you know, like kind of down throttle a little bit just so it's not all consuming. Yeah. You know what, for me, um, you know, meditation, uh, is, is a new construct today, but, uh, my run was my meditation. Oh my gosh, Sean, you know, I, I, you know, running for me was just absolute therapy. One, it was a great sweat, getting outdoors, moving, and, and so all throughout the last 40 years of my life, after I started to stop playing competitive sports, running has just been that, that me time where I've processed big questions and challenges and, and all of that. And I share a story in my book. There was, there was times in a wonderful way that I got so, in, you know, sort of engaged in just processing things almost in a meditative way that I had to look up and see where I was in the neighborhood and what street I was on. But running, running has just been that, that time to process for me as much as getting a good physical workout. And I think everybody needs that, right? And that's that recharge dot connecting thing. It's better than waking up at two in the morning. If I can get a run in uh, and process some of the things that are unsettled in my brain, it's super helpful. Yeah, no, I'm a huge advocate as, the, as, as well. Something like almost that steady state rhythmia seems to put me in that, in that meditative state as well. For you, what came first, the, the love of running or the love of business? Oh my gosh. Um, so I, you know, I put everything I had as a kid into hockey. Yeah. I put everything into it. I was, I wanted to be really good at it. I wanted to play on competitive teams, maybe, you know, college certainly, and then the NHL and maybe the Olympics. That was the dream of every Minnesota hockey player. Uh, where I grew up. So I put everything into it and I loved it. It was a great workout, a great sweat. You were just completely spent in a good way after a game. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Um, and so as I, as I mentioned, you know, I've, I've, I've started to work on my career as I, I thought about a path to, to try to be good at something and business was always part of that. So I think they're both always there. I used to describe um, and introduce myself to people, Sean, where they said, you know, sort of what are your hobbies? Well, I work and I love my work. I, my family is, is, is essential. I have a wonderful wife of now 40 years this year. We've been, we've been, we, we've been together and, and my kids and all of that. So family, but then my hobby was running. My hobby was, was being fit and, and, and just being moving, doing something physical. And I played, I played in men's hockey leagues for a while, but running, I, I ran three to five days a week for, you know, over 35 years. And, and, and I just loved it. So, so to me, a well-lived life is, is, you know, not one thing, of course, but, but, you know, being in leadership and, and being part of a team and building a brand, a love family, and then, and then doing something active, Sean. And for me, you know, that running has just been right in the middle of that. Yeah, I, I I see. No, there can't be a differentiation, right? Like you can't have, have that body component without the mind. Same, vice versa, you can't have the mind without the body. I, I'm in total alignment with you on that. Uh, I am wondering. You mentioned just the the ability to turn companies around, right? Like I'm so excited about hearing this. Like, how does one just become exceptional at being able to turn around companies? I, you know, I'm not sure I have the playbook for that, but I have to tell you, I loved it. There's you're solving puzzles, right? And the, and and that's that competitive strategy puzzle of, of whether, you know, you're a B2B business or a brand. And I, I became a consumer products person, you know, Pillsbury and Coleman and lots of other things before I came to Brooks. So I love consumer products. So solving for that customer creatively with a product fitting into all the choices they have. I just think that's one of the funnest things to do in business. And then building a business model and connecting the dots all the way through the P&L from, you know, pricing and margins and, and cost structure and, and business model to the balance sheet and solving for that. I, I started out as, as a banker, believe it or not, Sean. And, and so just connecting the dots from all the choices and decisions you made at a strategy and business level through the balance sheet and P&L. I love that. And, and I, and so I, because I could connect the dots financially to what was happening with a competitive strategy against the customer, you know, I think I have a lot of success in, you know, each of the turnarounds Brooks is the fourth company I ran, but we always solved for the customer in a very competitive market and then made sure we had margin and, and moving through cash flow and everything else, because 
you know, most of the businesses I ran had way too much debt. They were they were investor private equity backed, and and so you had to do it all. You had to solve, you know, for for cash flow and for growth. And uh, I love that puzzle. I have to say, it's it was it was a lot of fun to solve that. And in Brooks, you know, we're still solving it uh, in a growth mode. But um, yeah, I think I think turnarounds are not for the faint of heart because there's always you know there's a person with a padlock. This is literally true. Outside our door, the company didn't have to survive. It didn't have to sustain or exist. And it, and if we couldn't solve it, you know, bankruptcy was there, and 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 in some cases, liquidation. And I'd seen that in my early banking days. I I had to you know sell inventory of companies that had failed and and uh, had gone away. So yeah, it's it's certainly I would say not for the faint of heart. But I love the puzzle of it and. And the sense of urgency required, you have to you have to move, which is is just the mode that you're in if 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 you're in a struggling situation like that. It, it's so apparent now why why Warren loves your style and calls you a force. It, it, it's very apparent the way you think here uh, and how much he can he admires that. Uh, I'm intrigued. How did you get involved with Brooks? I, I'm asking because I also want to understand the decision making process. Right, like you mentioned, you think through things deeply. So I would love to know for you how you thought through that decision and what the early days were like there. Yeah. So it, it's a great question. So a good friend of mine in the nineties was running Brooks, Helen Rocky, and she had turned it around. And so the owners had decided to sell it and they were bought by a private equity firm and the private equity firm I had known in my pre- previous career because I had talked to them about investing in, in, a, in a company that I was running. So they put me on the board of Brooks, running company in two or three years before I took this position as an independent local CEO that, that could, you know, help help guide their investment and, and help the leadership team, I guess. So I was on the board at Brooks and then the company began to go sideways. The the CEO had left, two other CEOs um, you know, were were in play. So so there we're now on our third leader in two years and the company was struggling. And so it was particularly a board meeting where, where the chairman looked down the table and said, Jim, you should be in here running this company. And, and so what we did, Sean, is, is the company had a lot of issues and, and was um, out of cash. The bank want, was calling the loan. They had way too much debt. They hadn't been profitable in about three or four years. And uh, it was a tough puzzle. The bank was refusing to fund payrolls. We had weekly board calls every Friday, and they wanted more capital. And it was a crisis. And so, you know, as a board, we just rolled up our sleeves and, and you know, tried to figure out, you know, how, how this company could get healthy financially. And, and we saw an opportunity with a focus on core running products that were, were good margin products and that were doing well. But it was a sales-driven strategy. There was a lot of the business that wasn't profitable. So I had the advantage of being on the board. I had watched the company for a couple of years. With the board, we were all learning and trying to understand why the company was was struggling the way it was, and we got a chance to really, you know, kind of look under the hood and 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 understand the issues. And then I saw an opportunity and run. So it it was interesting, you know. I think I think the good news is they knew me really well, and uh, and I had begun to learn something about the company. Didn't make it uh, a sure win once I jumped inside, but um, but we went in eyes wide open for sure. Jim, prior to that, had you at all considered you might be CEO? Had you thought about that scenario at all? You know, not necessarily. I had a job and and I'd known Helen for many years. And as I was running O'Brien Water Sports, and then I went on to run a snowboard company, Brooks was in the neighborhood. And, uh, and, and so I'd been aware of the company for a while, but um, I love product. And so the, the idea of it was intriguing to me as, as they began to discuss it. But not really, you know. It was it was one of many companies. I was also on the board of Nautilus, a fitness company. So I still was very involved in the broader sports industry. Jim, I, I would love for you to mention the quote from Benjamin Disraeli that you put on your office day one, and what that means to you. You know, I, th- this was so important to me because by the time I got to Brooks, I had already run three companies. Brooks was the fourth company I'd run in four years, and as as you mentioned, Sean, it was another turnaround. And, you know, by that time, uh, and I talk about this in my book, I just decided and I've come to know that the long game was where real value was created. 
You know, there's a difference between value realization and value creation. And, you know, in, in these turnarounds, I had I had realized value for the investors by, by really getting it back on a plane that was profitable and successful. But really creating value was brand over time. It was creating trust with customers. So I, I took this job and I put on my whiteboard, the secret to success is constancy of purpose. And, and it was really for me to start with. It became central to the Brooks brand and, and what we built here. But, but Sean, I was trying to remind myself not to get itchy and impatient three years down the road. I really wanted to, to build a brand with Brooks. And footwear and apparel is a fantastic category globally. And running is the best category of all in athletic and outdoor. It's just the biggest. And so, you know, because we were a small player, I thought, okay, there's an, we got to turn it around first, but there's an opportunity here. So yes, this Benjamin Desiree quote, I, I think it's the truth, right? I, I just think focus for me, I've so admired people that are so good at everything they do. I've never seen myself that way. I think it takes hard work and focus for me to get really good at something. And that's what I've done. So, so that Disraeli quote, um, you know, constancy of purpose uh, I'm still here trying to build a brand over 20 years later in it. And, and so it's been super powerful to, for me um, to really create something that that is meaningful in the business world takes more than three years. That's what I've learned. You, you even have this line. It said the point of that quote is to obligate me to focus. I, I would love to know then as the leader of a company of 1,200 employees, like the amount of things going through your head each day is just mind boggling. How do you understand and decide what to focus on? You know, I, I think it's changed so much, so much, Sean. So when we were small, when I came into Brooks, we were 60, 60 plus employees. And, you know, I, I sort of had the business in my head. And that works at, at a small company. It doesn't work at a global, you know, I, we're a global brand now. And we're, we're trying to execute and compete with some of the best brands in the entire world. And, and I think we're, we're competing really well with them. So guess what? That, that really means leading a complex, integrated you know, playbook, a global playbook that represents our purpose and our brand mission and, and what we're trying to accomplish as a business, all of our strategies, but it's all happening through people. So now, you know, I, did, I would describe my, my role as much more like a coach some some of us have you know referred to us as ourselves as athletic directors now because we really have an empowered team we're on the same playbook we're on the same strategy but we're really working to support and empower our leadership team and all of our people ac across the company and and it's fun it's collaborative you know sort of connected environment very people driven um, but it's very ambitious we've got high standards um, that we, we are trying to play uh, as a team with. And, you know, it's super fun, but it's so different, Sean, from when I was, when we were small and, and I was just driving, you know, a smaller team on a, on a, on a simpler playbook. So yeah, it's, it's, it's much more like a coach today than it is like a, the, a quarterback on the field where you literally are calling all the plays. I'm not calling all the plays anymore, which is great, actually. Do you, do you remember different stages within the growth of the business where you realized th th there were big shifts happening? Oh, my. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, this, this focus on people, 2009, the Great Recession, almost everybody remembers that. We had a barefoot running phenomenon come through, you know, performance running business that, you know, there was, there was a thought that if you ran barefoot, you'd be healthier, which didn't turn out to be true. So at that time, it was one of those existential moments for our strategy and our brand and what we we're all about. We had an offsite and, you know, one of the smartest, there's a lot of smart people in business, but one of the smartest, a guy named Ram Sharan has written over 30 books. He's kind of a fortune 50 consultant strategy guy. We had him at our strategy offsite, Sean, and, and we, were, we were creating a, a new, you know, sort of path to compete in this new crazy stressed out world with the great recession and the like. And, uh, and, and so we had a strategy, we had three-year plans and, and we kind of got all that done and, and, and we stopped and he said, what about people? And, uh, and it was like a light bulb went off. He said, you have to plan your organizational strategy and your people strategy 
concurrently and simultaneously with your brand, planning, finance, all everything else you do. So now you've spent two days on strategy. Now let's spend two days on people. And it was just a wake-up call for me. And so that was a huge time for us because we had a culture, you know, and, and our fingerprints are all on the brand. I've been here a long time. They're all on the culture and how we work. But now we started to systematize that and really, you know, bring people into how we were going to work as a team in executing this strategy um, and how we wanted to develop leaders to, to really develop a culture because, you know, culture is, is really values in action, right? It, it's, it's behaviors and, 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 and they start with values, but it's not the values, it's, it's the behaviors and the action that comes from those. So what a journey we've been on. And I, I, how do you scale culture? That's a, like a, that's like a, that's like a, you know, graduate level course. We we're still learning, but we're working so hard on it. And that moment in 2009 is when we just shifted to, wow, if, if we're going to be a successful billion dollar company in a decade, which I think we've become, it's going to be because our culture is still intact mm-hmm. at a billion dollars. And, and, you know, we, we, that realization came in 2009, 2010, Sean, and, and, and that's the mission we've been on is to try and continue to develop and nurture a culture that can deliver that plan and attract the people and talent that we need to do so. Jim, after that 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 09 offsite and trying to systematize the the let's call it the growth of people, were yeah. there any immediate action steps that you started implementing with the people that has still sta- stayed with you guys today? You know, yeah, I think for me it, it's when I finally you know, had the realization was that it's great that if I could solve the and, and create a roadmap for success for Brooks, that's great. But what I really had to do is engage everybody on the leadership team, figure out, you know, where they were, how they felt about their development, you know, how they felt about their their path to success, what skill sets, what's what experiences, what areas in their own, you know, sort of quiver of skills did they want development in? So it really, it really is when I turned the focus uh, and got out of my head and into this conversation of being in the moment with people and really deeply listening and understanding where they were. And and I'm still, you know, I'm still working on that. All uh, in my point of view, you know, from my perspective. But that was a shift for me as a leader, where it's all about the people. You know, we we've come, we've all been through so many disruptions in the last couple of years with with COVID related, you know, first retail shutdowns and now in supply chain and, and all the things that have happened, Sean. So I think the key to that, you know, for me wasn't that I had to solve exactly what was there. It was making sure our people were focused and we were all asking the right questions. You know, as I, I've talked to new leaders coming into Brooks especially a newly promoted vice president, for example, you know, and, and, and coming up the ranks and leading a function or leading a, a significant part of the business. I said, here's the key. You don't have to know all the answers, but I, it's pretty important that you know all the questions and hold the questions with your team, because that's, as long as you're doing that, you're, you're going to be able to draw them to you and, and earn their confidence because we're on the right questions that we have to solve, but we're engaging everybody on our team's to be part of that and and using the best skills and talent that they can bring to bear to make an impact. So I I'm I'm rambling a little bit, Sean. No, but this I is do, fantastic. <laughs> I do think you know this focus on people. You know the example, the best example I have on how this has manifested itself at Brooks is in March of 2020 when all the retail shutdowns hit. All of Europe retail shut down in one week, um, and then of course retail shutdowns rolled through you know, our economy in, in, in the United States in that March of 2020. And so here was the key is that we paused, you know, we didn't, you know, almost everybody was, was, we didn't, nobody knew it was going to happen. Right. We didn't know the effect of this, how it was transmitted, how lethal it was. Nobody knew. And so, you know, we were all learning, but we paused before we laid off one person and before we cut our marketing expense, because we thought running would make the cut. And so by, by, by staying with our people through it and empowering them to create a new windshield and new radar to see what was going to happen in running and if they were going to keep running and if they were going to keep buying gear, the, the, the answer is they did. But by waiting six to eight weeks and sensing that with our teams, I think we had a huge advantage. So, so that's where we knew people made the difference. We worked so hard to build out this team that 
that when the lights came back on in our in our category, you know, we didn't we didn't miss a step. We just executed you know, so well through that. And it was all the efforts of our people, even when we were virtual. Yeah, I, I know you, you've mentioned just the importance of people developing your people. That's obviously going to lead to resiliency and all these other different attributes that they'll have. I am wondering, because I get this question a lot from other organizational leaders, is how do you help your people understand and then thrive during uncertainty? I, I know you, you've dealt with plenty of uncertain moments, so I, I guess I'm not asking specifically what you do personally, mm-hmm. but how do you develop the organization to be one that can thrive in uncertainty? You know, I, I think it's hard, right? Yeah. You know, it, it, they're almost buzzwords, right? You got to be resilient. You got to be agile. You have to be, you know, and, and it's easy to say that. How do you do it? So I, I can say that what we've done is we've communicated really clearly all the way through it. In, in, the, in, the, in the beginning of the COVID lockdowns, we had weekly global town halls every Friday. At, at 8 a.m. So Europe could be on and we recorded them for our Asia teams. We had weekly town halls and we would create, a, you know, basically show them here's how we're seeing it in, in, in terms of the development of this crisis from a, from a health standpoint, from an economic standpoint, retail, supply chain, all these things. And we just share with them what was what we were seeing on the overall business level so they could all operate on it. And all of it was virtual. You know, everybody was on their screens and the technology was bumpy for a long time. But I think everybody understood, you know, what we were seeing and and they could stay with us as we went through it. You know, I think if people don't have information, um, they end up filling that vacuum of of space with with, you know, whatever comes in their minds and and the conversations that happen between people. So it's super important to communicate, you know, everything you can, and even the things, the questions that you're holding that you don't have answers to, you, you know, we acknowledge that. So it's easy to say, communicate transparently, but I think we've done that, you know, with frames and, and the information that we have and the questions that we're still holding. So I, I've often said that, you know, I, I'm much more comfortable in leading with frames around strategy and plans and, and crisis management. Here are the frames of, of what we've got to solve for. Um, and here's what we know, we're taking action. And here's some of the questions that we're still working on and the teams are responsible for those are doing it. So again, I, I, I wish I had a silver bullet answer for it, but you know, because we've, we've you know, really tried to frame out the situation we're in, and what we need to solve for, we share that, you know, broadly with the teams. And I think people appreciate that, you know, especially in, in the craziness of, of disruption and chaos when, when there is a lot of uncertainty. You know, we don't hide that. <laughs> we don't have all the answers, but here's the frame we're going forward with. And I think that gives people a sense of, you know, we're on it and, and we're going to solve it and figure it out. Yeah, well, Jim, after 20 plus years, you know better than anyone, there are no silver bullets here in business. So I I appreciate that you bring up communication because like you mentioned, it can be a buzzword, but I still feel like so many leaders don't properly communicate. And when, when you're in an organization, it's it's so crucial. And so I, I just really appreciate you, you bring that up. One thing I would, I would love to get your perspective on, especially knowing the time you've spent with Buffett around long-term thinking, which you were talking about a few minutes ago, how has the past two years maybe it hasn't, has it changed at all how you think long-term perspective? And if so, what do you do just to get a good grasp on how you're thinking about long-term? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question because I think it's hard to do. It takes courage. It takes fortitude. Um, and and you got to keep everybody with you, which is not easy, especially when there's uncertainty because everyone has a different point of view about risk and, and about, you know, exactly what the long-term opportunity looks like because of all the uncertainty. We're in, you know, global, we're, we're a global company, both from a supply chain and a revenue standpoint, and the global, you know, landscape's changing, right? Um, and, and so nobody knows exactly how that's going to evolve, but we all have to process it. So, you know, I just think that, y- you know, you have to communicate what you know and what you still have to learn and the decisions and choices that you've made. And you've got to communicate to your employees, to your customers, to your partners, and your owners. And and we've tried to make really clear choices around all of those areas for Brooks and then communicate consistently all the way across. And these are the decisions and choices we're making 
Um, and obviously we're seeking input and, and, and advice around it, but that's our jobs. So we take that responsibility absolutely um, seriously in the sense that that's, that's our role to do that. And then we have to enlist support from all of our constituencies. And, and so that's the puzzle that we've worked all the way along. And the value of that is that they know what our North Star is. They know we're trying to build a leading performance global running brand with runners. We've been doing that for 20 years. We believe 10 years from now, there'll be more people running than ever before, maybe twice as many people running, Sean. So that's the opportunity in the North Star we have in front of us. And, and we keep that in front of all of our, our owners, our partners, everybody. So, so they know that. And that helps us, you know, um, keep them with us as we're, you know, we're going to have a terrible quarter because of supply chain, you know, challenges that we had last year. But everybody knows it. We knew it was coming. There's not, there's not much we can do about Q1 because of the closures in our factories in Asia um, in Q3 last year. There's nothing we can do about that. And I think all of our constituencies know that. So that's where the communication comes in too. Because we have a North Star, we, we can make long-term decisions and they they first understand them. And and then, you know, we I think can win their support for them. So that's that's how we've done it. It's it, you know, we don't take it for granted. I think that's the thing I would say is you don't take for granted that all of the partners in your business understand exactly what your opportunity is. And, and I've always felt that was my responsibility to show everyone the North Star opportunity for this brand and, and what we are trying to accomplish long-term and, and hopefully gain their support uh, to pursue that. Jim, you had mentioned being a, an intense hockey player, right? Like with, with tremendous focus. Have you always been this calm, cool, and collected from a business or, or is this an evolution for you? Um. Gosh, you know, I, I would say I learned it. I I had I've learned from so many people just watching them. One of the one of the executives I worked with at Pillsbury was Jerry Levin, and he was one of their top five folks. He ran, you know, Hagen Dawes and the restaurants group, and and did a lot of different roles there. But I watched him work in this in in a couple billion dollar you know growth corporation back then, and he was calm and collected all the way through. And, and uh, he was just focused and, and communicated well, had so many balls in the air. And I thought, wow. And he had fun doing it. It, did, it wasn't easy, but you could tell he was connecting with people and enjoying it. And I said, okay, there is, there is a profile of a leader, not command and control, never, you know, dealing, you know, with, with you know, people from an intimidation standpoint or, you know, sort of, sort of edicts. Um, he, he drew people to him and yet he was incredibly smart. So I watched that and I thought, okay, that's the kind of leader I want to challenge myself to be. And at my best, you know, I can execute that way, Sean. I think, you know, every, none of us have great days every day, but that's what I challenge myself to do because that's for other people, mm. you know, great that I'm smart and right. And I can figure things out and create successes. But if it's a, if it's a trail of, of, you know, catastrophes and, and damage and, and collateral, you know, uh, events and all of that, by the time you get to the finish line, that that's, that's not all that great. So it's about pe bringing people with you, you know, to the finish line. And I, I learned that from le great leaders I worked with early on in my career. Were you aware in the moment of the importance of finding a model and the amount you can learn through osmosis, or did it was it just a natural evolution of you just happened to be around these people for years and you just picked up from them, or was it a well thought out process? Wow, Sean, this goes right back to being an introvert. <laughs> I was super shy. I was so insecure. I I didn't want to ask people to mentor me. So I literally, it was all through osmosis in, in the early days. And, and I would try to get their attention through my efforts and work. And, you know, if you, if they asked, you know, me to analyze something or, or do a piece of work, I'd try to go the extra mile and let them know what I saw and how I thought about it. Um, and, and, you know, obviously try to create relationships and connections through my work. But I, I, it was almost all through osmosis. I was just fascinated with with how they were leading people, how they were leading meetings, how are they making decisions, how they were communicating those decisions. So yeah, or through through you know through my mid-20s to, to age 30, it was largely through osmosis. They were mentoring me and they didn't know it. Hmm. 
What about then, say, when you take over for Brooks, where all of a sudden you're you're at the top of the pedestal, and I know that's not how you run your organization. I'm just using it as like a visual oh. reference here. Where 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 are you learning from in those moments? Like, how are you picking up and developing at that moment? Wow, you know, here's what I learned is that is that you need to you need to be around people that you can learn from yeah. super smart people. And so, you know, I, early on in, in my um, career, I joined YPO, this young presence organization, and it's just a fabulous network of, of CEOs in the community. So, so many of them, I, again, learned by connecting and understanding the, how they were solving puzzles in their businesses, making decisions, so on and so forth. And then when I got to Brooks, we had a great board. Um, we really did. I'd come off the board, but it was it was really a well-functioning board. And when we became captured as part of Russell and Fruit of the Loom and Berkshire, when Berkshire rolled us in uh, to the, the structure as a subsidiary, one of the first, the first conversation I had with Warren Buffett was, I want to have a board of advisors. I had missed it. Mm-hmm. And the leadership team, you know, we could almost finish each other's sentences and they'd know what I was going to say. And it wasn't a sense of disrespect. It was just that we knew each other so well. The opportunity to have a board that we'd bring our strategies to, our biggest questions, our our biggest challenges to, and have them, you know, give us feedback on our plans. A, it would force us to up our game and be super prepared, you know, for people that weren't living in our business and didn't know about it. And B, we would learn from their experience. So at Brooks, we've we've punched above our weight on the board members that we brought in on our advisory board. It's not a fiduciary board, but I wanted it. And and so this group of people has been, they're they're sort of in a way my kitchen cabinet, starting with me, but they're for our whole leadership team, of course. And and that network has been super powerful. So, and again, I I think I I try to read podcasts are fabulous, right, John? I love. I love hearing other leaders' stories and how they've solved, you know, um, for the the business, the customer, et cetera, in their business. So I, I'm constantly trying to learn from what other people's um, journeys have have led, not just successes, but also challenges and failures. I think you learn from all that because I think success is uh, is is doing a lot of things well, right? There's I hate the negative side of, of our, our world as a leader and as a business. Here's the truth, Sean. There are lots of ways to fail. There really are. There are lots of ways to fail. And in these businesses, in, in our case, you know, the margin for error isn't, isn't, you know, there isn't much there. So you have to do a lot of things well. And so I think that's why, you know, lifelong learning and watching other leaders and other businesses and, and learning from maybe things they missed, but also learning from how they've executed so well in their area. Yeah, I, you, if, if you're in leading a, a complex business in a competitive category, can you ever stop learning? I, I don't see how you do that. We are trying to be open and, and learning all the time. Yeah, Jim, I mean, this last 10 minutes, there's just some things oozing out of you, right? The humility, even to say, you know what? There's all these people that I can learn from. Let me learn from them. Let me open up. Let me see what, what I can take from them. The, the focus, the commitment. One thing that just keeps like, it comes out of you just seems to be like the amount of fun and joy you're getting in all of this. And this is one of the great things that I love. Someone who someone who's turned around multiple companies, I would love to know what the internal dialogue is like for you during those challenging times. Because one of the interesting things about challenging times is, is so many of us resist those times. But then when we're able to look back with hindsight, all of those times led to the greatest amount of growth personally. So if we want to learn, we want to be a lifelong learner. It's like when those moments show up, it's like, oh, wow, here's an opportunity for me to use my skills, but then grow and develop. So when you're facing a really tough time as the leader, what's just the internal dialogue like for you? Oh, man, that's that's tough. I think in the early days in these turnarounds, you know, that that sense of a person with a padlock outside the door that the business could fail and go away was real mm-hmm. for me. It was real. And and that is, for me, very motivating. So so I think running fast to solve and, and create financial stability, first and foremost, super you know, motivating for me. And so, you know, working that hard and, and then solving it, you know, so the investors and the banks and everyone else could start to relax and actually think about something close to long term was a first step. 
But what I learned is that is that you ne- there is no finish line in business. There, you know, there's that you know, achieving goals, creating success, breaking the tape, super cool, right? I mean, we all want to do that. We we've set goals and we achieve them and we celebrate those successes. I want to force myself to do that. You have to celebrate those successes. But here's what I learned over time is that is that they're fleeting right i mean actually getting getting that outcome uh whatever it is in business it might be a financial outcome might be market share might be brand strength you know it's fleeting and because there is really no finish line so you have to enjoy the journey you have to life truly is short and and there's certain things over the last decades that have brought this home for me personally and and at brooks so what I remind myself of, and it's true with my wife and my kids and grandkids too, is that you've got to enjoy the journey. And it doesn't mean it's always easy. Sometimes it's super hard. Sometimes the stress is incredibly high, but that's being present for other people and just connecting and enjoying that journey. Because that's when I look back, right? It is those moments where you you kind of fought hard and worked hard and, and solved things in an ambiguous, you know, uncertain environment. You come through that. And you almost always do. Um, and, and, you know, and, and you look back and, and, you know, what got you there is, is really powerful. So they're almost cliches, but man, I've just found them to be so true, Sean. I, we try to do that. And so we celebrate small successes as well as big ones and, and celebrate the efforts and energy of people on the teams as we go forward along the way. It's just part of our culture. And, and I think that's what life is all about because, you know, as proud as we are of reaching a billion um, that's in our rear view mirror. And now we're continuing to focus on building out this brand, this culture, this team, and, and hopefully being more meaningful to runners all around the world. So, yeah, I, I think you, you know, like you, you do have to soak in the journey along the way as hard as it is. And I had situations where, you know, I wasn't, I, it wasn't an unabashed success. And, and while there was progress along the way, you know, one, I call my career mulligan because I just didn't, we it just didn't we didn't get to where everybody wanted to go, but that experience really helped me uh, prepare for what I had to deal with at Brooks because I could see beyond some of the intermediate stuff. If we could get through that, the longer term opportunity is real. So, so it's all helpful, um, but uh, man, you you have to you have to appreciate the journey you're on when you're on it because life is too short. Yeah. One thing I appreciate is when you finally did get some some space, I think it was, what, 13.1 years in, you were able to step back and, and really reflect here. So I would love to know just like the origin story after a lot of years in business, a lot of experience, how you sit down and actually start developing your ideas and get them onto paper for your book, Running With Purpose. Yeah. So, you know, um, I, I guess my midlife crisis started in my 40s and and has continued on. So at Brooks, when we first came in, in the middle of a turnaround, we wanted to retain some of our long-term employees. So we put a mini sabbatical program in and four weeks paid leave at 13.1 years of service. So for me, that came up in 2015. And so I took four weeks off and I went off the grid. How the longest that for you? ever done that <laughs> i think, I think you said you, you, you hadn't you taken maybe a week off one time in your whole career <laughs> I, it's really it's really sad you know speaking of enjoying the journey it's only the second time i'd taken more than two two weeks or more and so but what i did was i decided i'm gonna write every morning i'm gonna write four hours every morning so every morning i started the day not with the news and phone and feeds and all that I just I just started to write and and it was a manuscript of my life. I wanted to unpack my hardwiring and why I am who I am. And I got up to age 31. After four weeks, I wrote about 80 pages. And that was the start of it. It was really a, an unpack of my my hardwiring. And it was it was helpful for me to process. I wrote it partly for my three boys, just to share with them at some point, you know, why I am who I am. And and so I had that done. And then you know, the book came really out of a conversation with Warren. He said, Jim Brooks is a great, great story. You, you should write a book. It is a great challenger brand story in a, in a huge category. And so that was all I needed to sort of put the whole story together. You know, books are interesting, Sean. It was, it's more personal than I thought it would be. I loved, I love to tell the Brooks story. It's a great story. But, but my story is, uh, is in throughout the book as well. And, and, uh, and it's been, 
it's been therapeutic for me to unpack it. And, and I share a lot of what I've learned as a leader. So hopefully it has takeaway value for people. Yeah, I, I enjoyed you. You had the personal, I'm pretty sure it was a personal leadership manifesto within it, which was great seeing some of those big bullets that were really important. I'm wondering for you, knowing what you know now, would you have done an exercise like this? Even even if you're a leader who's not going to publish a book, would you step back and, and take some time to reflect on a lot of the things that have de- developed you and a lot of the lessons you've learned? Oh my gosh, Sean, I don't know. To be a great leader, which I aspire to be, and I'm still on a journey, I think self-awareness is so critical. How can you be situationally aware and connected as a coach with people if you don't understand your own filters? So for me, it was so important to do that. And and I think it's absolutely made me a better leader because I come in in a conversation with with a key leader on our team, knowing my own filters and and I'm more present and and focused on on, them and what they're saying and and how they're describing it. So I, I think it's essential as uh, to be a, a leader people, I, you know, I talk about the authentic leadership is kind of a buzzword. What is authentic leadership? But, you know, I talk about it being trust, curiosity and, and curiosity. You know, we mentioned the word humble before, and I never really liked the word humble uh, as an attribute for a leader, but what it really reflects is the fact that you you're open to learning, you're curious and you're intently listening to another person. It, it does require the assumption that you don't know everything. And, and I guess that's an attribute of being humble. So, but I think that 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 sense of you're, you're still able to learn from other people and, and knowing your own filter super well, I, I think that's part of being an authentic leader. So, you know, that's a, I didn't have that 20 years ago, mm-hmm. um, but I, I believe it to be true today. Yeah, Jim, talking about that authenticity, I mean, you truly do live out that authenticity around deep focus, being fully present with that person and coming from it from a place of curiosity and humility. Um, it's just it's just great when you see a leader of a company as big as Brooks, you actually actively leading that and, and living that out. I, I just find that really important, and I, and I just love seeing that. I, I, I've learned a lot from you in just watching, listening. I would love to know for you, though, if you could do this long-form conversation, say you were going to spend an, e- an evening with, with anyone dead or alive, just not a family member or friend, who would you love to sit down with and just just fire away questions at? Oh, my gosh. That question is always so thought-provoking. We, we throw that around at, at, at dinner tables with groups of people sometimes. And, you know, for me, uh, from a creative standpoint, of, I have a picture behind me of Bob Dylan working. Working and and his his you know songbook is massive hundreds and hundreds of songs, so incredibly hardworking artist and 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 you know that focus and and that creativity is just inspiring to me. So I'd love to you know crack a heaven's door whiskey um, with Bob <laughs> Dylan and spend an evening and and just talking about uh, life. I think, but you know I think in terms of being a student of leadership from Colin Powell to Barack Obama and many others. I mean, they're just people that have, have sort of led at multiple levels. Boy, you know, what what great conversations it would be. There, there's a lot of great leaders out there. Um, and I'd take a dinner or a lunch with any one of them at any time and just be curious to learn their story and how they think about leading. So, yeah. But um, I might start with Bob Dylan, I think. Yeah, Jim, a lot of people are going to learn from your book. You're obviously sitting in, in front of a, a massive bookshelf. You mentioned books plenty of time. Is there a book for you that you just felt was one of those earthquake books that like really shook your foundation in a positive way? Wow, that's a big one. Um, you know, I, I'm the, in that category, I'm going to go back to, I'm going to give two books. And one is is very unknown and the other isn't. But one is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And it just speaks to purpose. You know the purpose, your purpose in life, and and your ability to impact other people, not just to, not just becoming happy, but also to make an impact. So, so man's search for meaning was foundational for me in my forties. Um, but then there was this uh, old book from the eighties that I found, the Pym's Principles, and it was it was uh, a, a, an analysis of how to be successful as a company and and what the attributes were, high ROI were. And, and that one's a little strange, but maybe I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll hold that one back because it's a little wonky for people. But Byron Sharp did another book on how brands grow, and it's just brilliant um, on you know what what kind of customers are really make up a, a strong brand, and and that's been really helpful to us at Brooks to 
work hard on focusing and connecting with different layers of customers. But anyway, that's a start, I would say, Sean. Yeah, no, thank you. We, we always love book recommendations. Jim, you, your book, Running With Purpose, we're obviously going to have everything linked up here in the show notes below. Anything else you want to leave the listeners with or direct them where, where they can stay in touch with you or even pick up the book? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you know, I, we've got jimweber.org is, is where all the book information is. And it connects into the Brooks website too. So if you're uh, short on a good pair of shoes or gear to get your next run in, you can you can satisfy that as well. I love it. Jim, my mother-in-law had no idea I was interviewing you. She was just talking about she picked up a pair of Brooks running shoes the other day. So uh, you, you, got, you got another supporter there. But Jim Weather, uh, Weber, I truly can't thank you enough. Uh, you, you ooze authenticity, humility, and so many other amazing attributes that I know you live out there today. So I just can't thank you enough for joining us here on What Got You There. Great, Sean. Great, Sean. Thanks you. Uh, great chat. Really enjoyed it. Have a great day. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.